talked about the importance of the church for three weeks, and uh, today I, I want to talk about church membership essentials, church membership essentials, and they are recording this today, uh, and this will be something that we can also uh, give to people when they uh, go through our foundations class, and so it'll be a help uh, to us that are here and also an ongoing help. And uh, I want to talk to us because often I, I, I get the question because different churches and different denominations mean different things when they talk about membership. And membership is a real thing because in a church setting like this, to be a member of the church is more than just to attend the church. To be a member uh, means that if there's business matters that need to be taken care of, you would be able to vote and your vote would count and uh, and. There are requirements for that under the bylaws of a church, and uh, but it's more than just signing your name to a piece of paper, and it's more than just coming. To be a member uh, that is able to participate and vote and so forth, uh, you need to be a member in good standing. And in our church, uh, that means that, uh, first of all, you're birthed into the church, and what we mean by that is you, you just can't sign a piece of paper. You have to... You have to be born again of water and the Spirit, and you have to believe that the Bible is true, that every word of the Bible is true. And so what that means is to be born again of water and Spirit, and it's not my intention to go through an entire lesson on uh, salvation this morning, but to be born again, you have to first repent of your sins, and to repent of your sins means that you are, you're dying with Christ, you, your flesh dies out and you're crucified with Christ and to repent means more than just to be sorry. Uh, I've been sorry before, uh, mostly sorry that I got caught. Uh, sometimes when my kids get in trouble, I can tell that uh, they, they show sorrow, they're crying, but they're not really sorry for what they did so much as they're sorry that they got caught doing what they did and they're sorry they have to suffer consequences but they're not really sorry that they did what got them in trouble in the first place. And sometimes we confuse being sorry for having to suffer through the indignation of being caught or being called out. And that's not really repentance. Repentance is acknowledging that I'm a sinner, that I've done wrong. I was born into sin, that I have sinned, that I've fallen short of the glory of God. You know, as Pentecostals, sometimes we jump over that, that scripture that says, for we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, to fall short really is the definition of sin. Sometimes we try to attach uh, uh, variables to sin. So we say, well, um, to, to smoke is a sin or to commit adultery is a sin. And all of that's true. But sin is much deeper than just some of the big things that you can point to. To be a sinner is to fall short of the glory of God. And we have all fallen short of the glory of God. The word sin in the original, in the Hebrew and the Greek, literally means to miss the mark. So that means that uh, I I'm trying to hit a particular mark. The mark is to be like Christ, to be like the Lord. And we have all missed the mark, every single one of us, regardless 
of whether or not you've committed one of the big ticket sins, right? Like uh, the ones we think of uh, stealing, murder, fornication, adultery. All of these things are what we consider big ticket sins. But in reality, we have all missed the mark of what it means to be like Christ. Every single one of us. In fact, uh, it's well known that no one has to teach you how to lie, right? Any liars in the house? Yeah. Yeah, we've all lied because we've, we've all fallen short. It, in fact, it's part of our fallen human nature to lie. Lying comes naturally to people. You have to, you have to fight against your flesh to be an honest person. And that requires crucifying your flesh. And, and so repentance is more than just I'm sorry. Repentance is a decision that I'm going to turn away from what I used to be because I'm sorry for what I used to be, but that sorrow leads to godly repentance, which means I'm not going to do that any longer. I've made a decision. And, and when I find out that something is wrong that I didn't know is wrong, I'm going to repent for that and turn away from that too because I want to be like the Lord. That's what godly repentance is. So that's the death. The burial is to be baptized, to be baptized in the only saving name, which is not a title. It is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't baptize in titles, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, because Jesus is the Father, he is the Son, and he is the Holy Ghost, and his name is Jesus. So we baptize in the name that has authority, the name that they baptized in all throughout the New Testament. And that is the burial. But you don't want to stay dead and you don't want to stay buried. You want to be resurrected and you want to be born again of the spirit. And so that is speaking in other tongues, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence, the initial or the first evidence, which is speaking in other tongues. Look at your neighbor. I know some of them might be far away, but find someone if you have to shout at them and tell them that speaking in other tongues is not the only evidence of the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Go ahead and tell them. It's not the only evidence. It's not the only evidence, but it is the first evidence. It's the first evidence that is going to be manifested in your life when God first fills you with his spirit. There's going to be that initial evidence. In some ways, I think of it like this. You know, the Bible uses the analogy of being born again. That was the conversation that Jesus had in the middle of the night with Nicodemus. You must be born again of water and spirit. And some ways I think of it when a baby is born and, and first comes into the world, the doctors want the baby to cry. They want the baby to cry. In fact, if the baby doesn't cry, they're concerned. And so sometimes they'll do something to try to induce sound or noise from the baby to, to show that, that they're breathing, to show that they're alive, to show that they're healthy, that their lungs are full of air and oxygen. That's a good thing. You want a baby that's brand new to the world to make noise, to, uh, to prove that there's oxygen flowing through its blood, its own, breathing on its own accord. Because until that moment, that baby has been depending on the mother to be able to have life and sustenance. But now uh, oxygen can fill that baby's lungs and you want it to be expressed with noise. When you are born and birthed into the kingdom of God, there is going to be a noise that bursts forth from your lips. It's going to be the cry of a brand new baby in Christ Jesus speaking in a heavenly language 
one that God fills you with that you did not invent, that you did not previously know. It is the language of the Spirit, and it is a beautiful and powerful thing. And if you have never received the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues, I want you to know that it is one of the most marvelous experiences that you can ever have in your entire life. If you're here and you have the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues, would you just wave your hand as a testimony if you remember the very first time? How amazing was it when God filled you with the Spirit and you burst forth? Sometimes we call it uh, speaking with the tongues of angels or it, it's an ecstatic experience. That's why sometimes you'll see people uh, shaking or their lips are stammering. Why is that? Because the power of God comes upon you and fills you. Listen, when the power of God fills you, you're not going to be able to just be still because God is bigger than this universe. God is the maker of heaven and earth, and his spirit comes inside of you, and it is more than just goosebumps, and it is more than just a happy feeling and a smile on your face and, and a feeling of refreshment. It is the power of God coursing through your veins. Your, your soul is refreshed, and for the first time, that missing piece in your life, that hole in your heart that was always there from the moment of your birth, you knew something wasn't right, something was missing in your life. For the first time, you feel fulfillment as God fills you with the spirit and, and, and you feel peace that you've never felt before. You feel a joy that you've never felt before. You may have felt happiness, but you have never felt joy like the joy of the Holy Ghost. You have you may have felt peace in your life, but you have never felt peace like the peace that passes understanding that only comes from the Holy Ghost. And so it is an amazing experience. Sometimes people will say to me, why do I need the Holy Ghost? And, and of course, I could give them a doctrinal explanation, and I do. I can take them through the Scripture, and the Scripture is very clear that you must receive the Holy Ghost in order to be saved. But aside from all of that, my question to them is, why would you not want the Holy Ghost? If, if God was willing to give you the greatest gift in the entire world, why would you say, I don't want that from God? My response is, that ought to be the number one thing you're looking for in your life, is for the, the maker of heaven and earth to fill you with his spirit. There is no greater joy than the joy of the Holy Ghost. And so, uh, you know, even if you didn't think you needed it to be saved, I can't imagine why you wouldn't hunger and thirst for God to fill you with his spirit. But regardless, we do need it, and I'm so glad he gives it, aren't you? Aren't you glad that not only do you have to have it, God will give it to you freely, and not only that, God wants to give it to you more than you even want it, because God loves you more than you love yourself. And you know, some of y'all really love yourself, so that is a tall order, but God loves you more than you love yourself. Isn't that an amazing thing? And so God will absolutely forgive you. He'll, he'll put his name over you. When you're baptized, he puts his name over you. And when you're full of the spirit, he fills you and he empowers you to overcome sin. And so this is what it means to be birthed into the church. So uh, it's, it's good to keep records. And, you know, we keep records of who's a member and who's here and all of that. And uh, we keep records of even people who aren't members who attend and, and, and love the church, and we love everybody. But in the end, you have to be birthed, born into the church, uh, just, uh, just to be a part of what God is doing and to enter into the kingdom of God. And that is what Jesus taught us. It's not what we're teaching. It's what Jesus taught us. 
That's why the word apostolic is on the sign, because we are an apostolic church. We believe what Jesus taught the apostles, and we teach what the apostles taught. And that means that we are apostolic. So uh, that is how you're first birthed into the church. That is the initial birth. Now, at that point, you're a baby. And so you're beginning, and there's a lot of things you need to learn and a lot of ways you need to grow. Just like when uh, uh, you know, a newborn comes into a family, a newborn may not contribute right away. Uh, and, and, but uh, eventually, uh, when a baby turns you know, 18 or so, uh, you want that baby to contribute a little bit, right? Do something. Uh, at least pick up the room, glory to God, praise Jesus. In fact, it'd be great if they'd pick up the room even younger than 18, wouldn't it? You know, maybe even, you know, I don't know, young. It would be good. And so there, there's different levels that you expect at different ages, and, and it's that way in the family of God. Uh, we know, and I know, that there's going to be a growth process. Everyone said a process. There is a process that takes place, and we all understand that. But the process does need to be happening. It does need to be happening. And so wherever you are, wherever you are in your relationship with God, whether you've been serving the Lord 50 years or, 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 or five minutes, there needs to be a, a desire in your heart that I'm going to be growing in my relationship with God. I, I don't want to be stagnant, and I certainly don't want to be going backwards by the way, that's where we get the word backsliding. What that really means is you're, you're sliding back. I always envision it this way when I talk about backsliding uh, is, you know, the Bible talks about the pool of the world. And so I, I sometimes envision for a backslider, and we've all, we've all backslidden a little bit at some point. Amen? Can we be honest? I've backslidden a little bit. I, I've sat on church pews and been totally backslidden. Nobody knew it, but I knew it, and God knew it. And what that means is sometimes there's that invisible pull of the enemy on your life. And, and if you let it, if you don't resist it, it will pull you backwards. You're backsliding. And so even though you, you look like you're facing the right direction, you're getting further and further away from your destination until eventually you just turn around like Lot's wife. And that's when, of course, things become obvious. When you turn around... Uh, you turn into a pillar of salt, so to speak, and everybody can see the fruit of the backsliding that has been taking place for a long, long time. And so we certainly don't want to be backsliding. Wherever you are, you want to be moving forward in Christ Jesus. I want to move forward. And that's why Paul talked about reaching forth and running the race, all of these analogies that 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 bring the imagery of, of going forward in God. He said, you know, I'm not going to look back. I'm not going to look to the things which are behind. I'm going to look to the things which are ahead because I'm moving forward. I'm not going to let something pull me back to where I used to be uh, or take me back a few steps. And if I do fall down and if I do lose a little bit, I'm going to get back up and I'm going to move forward and I'm going to keep progressing in God. Everybody falls down. Everybody loses a few steps. Everybody gets on their face every once in a while. The key, though, is that you get up and you move forward in the Lord. Again, I'm using kid, kid analogies because so much of the Bible does that. Uh, and we don't like that as adults because, you know, we're, we're dignified and we're grown and all of that. But, you know, in God's eyes, that's why the Bible talks of having what? A childlike faith. In God's eyes, you know... If you really believe that God has infinite wisdom, infinite knowledge, he's omnipresent, uh, you know, he, 
Uh, he knows the end from the beginning. He's the Alpha and the Omega. If you really believe all of that, no matter how intelligent you think you are, no matter how accomplished you are, talented you are, whatever it is, and I hope you're all of those things, when you stand before God, it's a dramatically humbling experience. Because all of our talent is nothing compared to God. All of our knowledge is nothing compared to God. Whatever it is you have, and I, I hope you have, there's some amazing people in this room right now. I, I'm speaking to some people who have accomplished things and done things and some incredible people. But when we stand in the presence of God, all of that seems silly, doesn't it? Because God, God is bigger than all of those things. Everything that we've done pales in comparison to the maker of heaven and earth. And so we have to humble ourselves. And I often think when, when my children uh, were first learning to ride bikes, um, they fell down a lot, as they do. You know, you, you put the training wheels on, and they're kind of going uh, by themselves. And the training wheels make them feel like they're doing it on their own. But in reality, they're leaning on something else that holds them up artificially. And that often happens to us in, the, in our early stages of our relationship with God. Have you ever seen like a new babe in Christ Jesus and it just seems like, like absolutely nothing phases them? Well, they've got training wheels that are holding them up in the spirit. And then at some point, though, God says, okay, we're going to take the training wheels off now. And, and you're going to have to learn to do this thing, which means, and God knows this, you're going to fall down. There's going to be some scrapes. There's going to be some tears. There might even be a little blood every once in a while. I remember my son, he had a big old cut on his knee one time. And as a parent, I didn't say to my kids, I never, you know, regardless of, of, of how difficult it was, I never said, you know what? Don't worry about learning to ride a bike. Doesn't matter. You can't do it anyway. I don't think, I, maybe this isn't for you. Maybe this isn't something you need to do. No, I didn't do that. I said, you know what? Let's get up. Let's wipe it off. Let's, let's get a rag. Let's get some ice. And, uh, and let's get back out there as quick as we, and let's try it again. Because this time, you're going to get it. And you know what? Eventually, it was this time, and they had it. And you know, the saying really is true. Once you learn to ride a bike, you just know how to ride a bike. But it took a whole lot of falling down to get there. And that's how it is sometimes in our relationship with God. We have to grow into deeper and deeper things with God. And eventually, you know, God will, God will do, a, the Holy Ghost will do a lot of it for you in the beginning. And then at some point, God says, you know what, you're going to have to walk in the spirit yourself. You're, you're not going to be, I'm going to take the training wheels off. You can't crawl. You're going to have to walk. It. That means you're going to have to pick up your feet. That means you're going to have to say no to temptation. That means you're going to, you know, the Holy Ghost will, will do it for you for a while. But at some point, you're going to have to be able to stand up and say, no, I'm not drinking that. No, I, no, I'm not having anything to do with. No, I'm not going there. I'm not going back to that. At some point, you're going to have to do that on your own. No, I am making that change. I, I know my flesh doesn't like it, but I am going to change. I am going to be modest. I am going to be holy. I am going to, to, to be appropriate in the kingdom of God, regardless of what my flesh thinks about it, because I'm going to walk in the spirit. And that's what it means to mature. And so I'm going to give you some, some just basic. For some of you, this is just going to seem incredibly simple. But I'm going to go through it anyway. 
And, and this is what I consider to be essentials. These are just the, the bare minimum, the basics of what it means to be a, a church member, a, someone who is born, already born again of water and spirit, and now you're continuing and, and you want to be a part of the kingdom of God. How many want to be active in the kingdom of God? I, I don't just want to be on the sidelines. I want to be a part of the kingdom of God. And by the way, this applies to me as a minister as well as to you. You know, Paul said, and, and you know, I often have people come to me and say in this church, they'll say, what can I do to be involved in ministry? I want to have a ministry. And uh, this will answer that question for you because let me just say this right up front. You cannot have a ministry unless you're doing these things that we're about to talk about. I can't have a ministry unless I'm doing these things that I'm about to talk about. Because Paul said that we are called to be what? Saints first. Called to be saints first. And so if, if we can't be a saint, if we can't be, if we can't be shepherded, discipled, if we can't be faithful in the small things, Jesus said it that way, you know, you've got to be faithful in the small things before you can be entrusted with the big things. But what we have is a generation of people who want to be entrusted with the big things and bypass the small things. You know, we have a lot of Davids who don't ever want to be in the field. They don't ever want to be in the field. They want to go right to the king's castle. But it doesn't work that way. You have to be faithful with the small things. And it begins with that. And so really everything we're going to talk about is faithfulness. You're going to hear that word a lot because that really is. You know, we talk about having faith. Everyone said have faith. And we equate having faith uh, specifically with laying hands on the sick and seeing them recovered. How many believe that their healing still is in effect in the church? It absolutely is. I've just seen it this week. Um, so, you know, we talk about faith in terms of moving the mountain, right? You know, lay hands on the sick. Uh, pray and your prayer is answered. And all of that is true. That, that is faith. But you cannot have real faith without faithfulness. You know, the reason some of you wonder why you think you have faith to lay hands on the sick and see them recovered, and then, and then when you're trying to operate with spiritual authority and you, and you think, well, I have faith, I believe God can do that. Well, the problem is you're not faithful. So all your faith, in theory, doesn't matter if you're not faithful. So you have to have faithfulness, and then you can have faith that moves mountains. Because it all goes together. Can you imagine if the disciples would have been with Jesus and, and, uh, and, and uh, one of them and Peter straggled in and said, well, I haven't seen you in about a month, Lord. You know, I've been, I've been missing everything. I've not, I've not been involved. I haven't contributed in any way. But tell me how to move that mountain. It would have been a far different lesson. Jesus wouldn't have said, you know, just have faith and speak. He would have said, listen, well, first thing you need to do is be here. And then we'll talk about how you can move mountains. You know, the disciples, before they could ever have faith to lay hands on the sick and cast out demons and all of those things, they had to have the faith to lay down their nets and follow Jesus, which meant that, you know, and <laughs> I'm always amazed. Jesus didn't give them much time to think about it, did he? he? He didn't say, well, you know, go home, you know, pray about it, uh, get in a six-month Bible study. Uh, you know, and get a life coach and, you know, and read a couple books and just really you know, meditate on it. And, 
you know, just really get in there and just search your heart. No, Jesus didn't do any of that. He said, you know what? If you want to follow me, lay him down right now. Let's go. Lay him down right now. Let's go. No, well, what about my leave your job? Come on, let's go. Well, what, what are we going to? Nope, just let's go. I'm going to take care. Of, do you trust me to take care of? All right. Well, then lay him down. Follow me. Well, I don't understand. Well, if you hang out with me, you'll understand. You know, you got to start walking with me if you want to hear my voice. See, a lot of people, they, they think, well, you know, I, don't, I won't follow till I understand. But you will never understand until you follow. Hello. Yeah. So if you want to hear his voice, you got to walk with him. He's not going to talk to you if, if he's calling you to leave your nets. He's not going to talk to you. Until you say, okay, I'm listening. Wherever you're going, I'm going. Whatever you're doing, I'm doing. I'll be there, Lord. If I have to, if I have to give some things up, maybe I have to give fishing up, whatever it is. Some of y'all, some of you men just about passed out, but whatever it is. But, you know, those guys had to, you know, they gave up their, really they gave up their occupation is a more accurate way. They weren't fishing for fun. They were fishing for, for sustenance. They literally gave up their livelihoods. Can you imagine... Can you imagine if it was the ch church's call today and we were telling people, you know, listen, you want to follow the Lord? Quit your job right now. Come on. That'd be hard. A lot of people would not do that. And yet that is the very thing that Jesus told people to do. He told them to quit their job. Follow me. Let's go. Let's go. You know, the Lord called me. I know God doesn't call everyone to do that, but the Lord called me to do that. When I came into the ministry, the Lord told me I had a lucrative job. I made great money, a lot more money than I make right now. And I was only 22, and the Lord told me, I want you to quit that job, go into ministry, make $200 a week. I said, is that you, Lord? Are you sure? Is that really what you want me to do, God? Making over $100,000 a year, and you want me to make $200 a week? How am I even going to do that, Lord? But you know what you got to do? You got to lay down your nets. You got to follow Jesus. You got to do what he calls you to do. All right, so the first thing, I got to move quickly. Uh, I'm, I'm not getting very, very far. Uh, first slide. Uh, here's the first thing you have to do. Part of church membership essentials is be faithful to church services. Doesn't that just seem like common sense? Doesn't that just seem like, you know, that just, but you know what? You'd be amazed at how, how difficult that is for some people to grasp. Be faithful to church services, Matthew 18 and 20. Now, listen, there's a lot of scriptures that I could have read. You know, most people, and I usually would go to, um, you know, where, uh, Paul said, forsake not the assembling together of yourselves and so much the more when the day of the Lord approaches. And that's a great scripture. That's the one we usually quote because it is so relevant. And uh, there's there's a little thing that I've noticed about about church attendance. If you study the book of Acts, they were having church like every day. Like every day. OK, so when the church was birthed, they they had more church than just about any generation. They were having church, 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 church. People were selling everything they had. Some of y'all are getting nervous. I'm not preaching to sell everything you had. But they were, listen, they were sacrificing. They were selling everything they had and giving it to the church. They were getting together and every day. They were getting together every day. They were preaching in the streets every day, every day. No wonder they were having revival. And so uh, this was going on. And then, and then of course, uh, you know, you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of, of history in the church uh, having its ups and downs. You have the dark ages where the church has to, the true church has to go into hiding and all of these things. And then you, you come into the resurgence of Pentecostalism where it exploded again. It had always been there, but just kind of behind the scenes. And then it exploded uh, in the modern centuries. And, and 
And then when Pentecostalism exploded, you know, my great-great-grandparents, uh, you know, they were having church like the first church almost every day. Go back and talk to a, a, an elder, 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 and they'll tell you, won't they, Sister Cole? They'll talk about 30-day revivals every single day. And we're talking, my grandfather would tell stories of, you know, he would work a 14-hour shift, get up, you know, be up 2 in the morning, get off work, and literally change clothes at work, go pick up grandma and the kids, and go straight to tent revival service. Be there till midnight, go back to work, do it all over again 30 days in a row, and loved it. And the power of God fell. No wonder. No wonder revival broke out. There was a dedication. And there was a love for it. And, of course, they didn't have television they were craving and all of those things like people have today. So now people, uh, they call it family time. And in reality, it's movie time. And we wonder why we're not having revival. And so, uh, but in the early church, they, they were committed to revival in the, in the early turn of the century church. And, and so, and then you have this scripture. Here we are getting closer and closer to what? The rapture. And we're having less and less church. Do you think that's a coincidence? Do you think it's a coincidence that Paul had the anointed inspiration to warn the church and say, listen, be careful, because in the last days, the temptation will be to have less church when really you need to forsake not the assembling together of yourselves. So I could preach on that, but I want to look at Matthew 18 and 20. It says this, Jesus speaking, for where two or three are gathered together in my name. Can everyone just say that name quickly? Jesus, there am I in the midst of thee. Amen? Now, I talked about this the other day in a Sunday morning. This scripture does not mean that if you're by yourself, God cannot be with you. Does everybody understand that? This doesn't mean that if you're by yourself at home, that you have to go get two or three people and gather together in his name for him to be there with you. Nobody believes that, do they? But we believe the word of God is true, and I believe what Jesus said. What Jesus was saying is that there is a power and an authority and an unction and a faith and a level of consecration that only comes when my people get together in my name. And what he was really saying is, it doesn't have to be a thousand people. It doesn't have to be a hundred people. All you need is two or three, and there is something that happens. Why? Because the gospel and the church was, was instituted by God to be a body of people who get together. God never designed the church for us to be a bunch of people living by ourselves, doing our own thing by ourselves, trying to make it by ourselves. God designed the church for us to do this thing together. He designed us to have a pastor. He designed us to have accountability and brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we cannot have any of these things if we are not faithful to church services. Um, in reality, let me just give it to you this way. Uh, you, it really should be your mindset if you're a mature Christian to always be in church whenever something is happening at the church. That ought to be the mindset. Now, does that mean that that can always happen in real life? No, we understand that, you, you know, you get sick and you have to work a job. And we live in a culture where, you know, jobs aren't like they used to be. Everybody's working crazy hours and midnight and morning and afternoon and everything else. Nine to five is gone. 
you know, the six-day-a-week is gone. It shouldn't be, but it is. It's gone. It's a seven-day-a-week business culture. It's ungodly, by the way. It's one of the reasons America's in trouble. It's not a coincidence that Chick-fil-A is beating everybody out in sales and they're closed on Sundays. Why? Because God honors that kind of faithfulness. All right? So, but I understand we live in the real world, things happen, you can't always help it. So nobody's, this is not a church, and anyone who's been here for any amount of time knows that pastors not, uh, we're not beating down your door if you miss. But I will tell you, if you want to be mature in the Lord, and you want to be a member in good standing, it ought to be your heart and your mindset and your desire. If I can be there, I'm going to be there. If I can be there, I'm going to be there. Uh, your kids shouldn't have to wonder if you're going to church. Your family shouldn't have to wonder, well, are we going to stay in and eat pizza or are we going to go to church? Are we going to go to work day or are we going to eat pizza? Are we going to, uh, you know, are we going to be uh, at prayer or, or are we going to be doing something else? Now, again, there's reasons that sometimes you can't help it and that's the way it goes. But it should never be because you're prioritizing carnality over the kingdom of God. The moment you're prioritizing carnality over the kingdom of God, you have a real problem in the spirit. All right, next slide. Number two, this goes right in with, with attending, is to be accountable. Everyone said be accountable. Now, accountability is, is an interesting thing uh, because you have to have it in the kingdom of God. You're accountable to God. Everyone said to God. But God is, has placed over you what the scripture refers to as under shepherds or overseers, which we get our word pastor, by the way, from the word shepherd. So to be a pastor is to really be a shepherd, an under shepherd. We, we know that God is what? The great shepherd. A pastor is not the great shepherd. A pastor is an under shepherd. So they, uh, God has always done this, by the way. God speaks through. Now, God will speak to you in the New Testament era. But God is not going to bypass the overseer that he's placed in your life. And so the, God has given us overseers. Now, here's 1 Peter 5 and 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd, everyone said shepherd. So he's, he's speaking to pastors right now. He said, shepherd the flock of God. That is among you, exercising oversight. Everyone said oversight. So to exercise authority. So God has given under shepherds, pastors, he's given them authority. Now, if you read the rest of the scripture, I didn't have room to put it on here. But, but Paul goes on to talk about speaking to pastors. You can't lord over the flock. You can't, you can't do it for filthy lucre. You can't do it for money. You know, you shouldn't be getting in the in the... Uh, in the ministry for money, because I'll tell you what, unless you want to just prostitute the gospel, it ain't going to work for you, all right, unless you want to be a false prophet. So you shouldn't do it for money, and you shouldn't do it for, for uh, you know, for to have a big name or to be important or to lord over people or to beat people up. That's, that, that's not what godly shepherding and oversight looks like, but you should, however, have authority, now, here's the thing about church authority. A pastor cannot force his authority on you. Did you know that? Here's the thing about the kingdom of God. Just like Jesus never forced his authority on anyone, 
He was God manifest in the flesh. He could have made everybody do whatever he wanted them to do, but Jesus didn't do that. Jesus gave them a choice. Remember the rich young ruler? He went to the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler wanted to follow him. And Jesus gave him every reason not to follow him. Why? Because Jesus was honest. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, I want you to know all of the things that you're going to have to give up before you follow me. I want to be up front with you because if you're not willing, we might as well figure it out now. We're not going to waste years and years trying to figure out whether or not you're willing to do what's right. We're just going to tell you up front. And I hope you do it because I love you. Jesus loved that young man. But the young man counted the cost and said, no, I'm not going to do it. And so if Jesus didn't force his authority, your pastor and I, we can't force our authority on you. That's not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God works where you have to say, okay, I am going to accept authority just like you would accept God's authority. I'm going to accept God's under shepherd as an authority in my life. And until you do that, we're not going to make you do it. Nobody's going to handcuff you. Nobody. Listen, you can tell us, uh, you know, you can come to church and look like everything's right. We're, we're, we're all aware that there's a lot of things that you can do to try to make it seem like you're right with God when you're not. And we are not going to break. Now, the FBI will. You don't pay your taxes. They'll come find you. That's the government. That's not church government. The church isn't going to do that. We're not going to come looking for you. You're, you're not going to get, you know, if you don't pay your tithes, you're not going to get a bill. And there's, there's no church IRS that can come track you down and take things out of your bank account. That's not how the kingdom of God works. You have to be willing to do it. That's why, that's why Paul said, you know, when you give, God wants you to not only give, but he wants you to be a cheerful giver. Now, the Bible never told us we have to pay our taxes with cheer. He told us you better give unto Caesar what Caesar's, but you can grumble about it if you want to. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, God expects you to give cheerfully. Why? Because if you don't give cheerfully, you're not going to give at all because nobody's going to make you do it. Nobody's going to make you be a member. Nobody can and nobody wants to because God is not looking for forced labor. God is looking for people who will give a labor of love. He's looking for people who will present their bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is their reasonable service. Can we lift up our hands and just ask that God would help us to do that? Lord, we love you today. Thank you for your touch in our lives. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. I pray that we would walk in the basics of what it means to serve you with all of our hearts. We give you praise and glory. And everyone said in Jesus name, in Jesus name.